Welcome to the Mass Bar B Podcast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association, available free to members of the bar as well as the public. We feature lively discussions about important legal developments, interesting stories about MBA members, and helpful practical information about the law that matters to all of us. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich. Last month, the Massachusetts Bar Association once again presented a series of free and open to the public events celebrating the many benefits of dispute resolution. Well, today I'm very happy to welcome a special guest, attorney Sarah E. Worley of Sarah E. Worley Conflict Resolution with offices in Boston and Southeastern. She's also the chair of the MBA's Dispute Resolution Section. She's here to talk about restorative justice, what it is and how it impacts the workplace, school and more. Well, first of all, welcome. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. And uh, let's begin with the most obvious question. What are we talking about? What is the definition of restorative justice? So restorative justice is a process. It's a mechanism to address a wrong. And the easiest way to think about it is um, when people watch Law & Order, they expect that the bad guy gets caught, the system is going to punish the bad guy. Crimes that are committed are committed against the state, and the state prosecutes those crimes. So, although I would never do this, Jordan, if I were to commit a crime against you, and I was arrested for that crime, and I was taken to trial, it would not be Jordan Rich versus Sarah Worley. Mm. It would be the Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Sarah Worley. Right. Because the state acts on your behalf. Mm Mm-hmm. And we call that the punitive justice system. Mm -hmm. So in punitive justice, we ask three questions. We ask, first, what law has been broken? Mm -hmm. Second, we ask, who did it? And third, we ask, what did they deserve as punishment? And those questions are asked on your behalf by the state because they're now standing in your stead as the prosecutors. Right. Restorative justice takes a different view. So in restorative justice, we ask three questions as well. Mm -hmm. The first is, Who has been harmed? The second is, what are their needs? And the third is, who has an obligation to repair the harm? So restorative justice tends to shift the focus toward the victim as opposed to having the focus be the state. Now, does this happen concurrently with criminal cases? It depends. So in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, in every state of the union, we still have traditional criminal process set up. We use restorative justice, or we see it used more frequently now, in things such as school settings, uh. um, places where a wrong is committed, and you know the best solution isn't always to bring down the hammer. Um, mm. I will tell you, there's a controversial and interesting conversation taking place now in the space of Me Too. Because we've seen over the last two years, Mm. someone come forward with a very credible claim, and the next thing that happens is the person against whom this claim is made is fired. They're terminated. They're marched out of the building. Um, I I refer to that as burning down the house. (laughs) And if we keep burning the house down every single time, first of all, we're going to run out of houses. And second, what are we really accomplishing? Because once you terminate somebody and you cast them out, first of all, you don't have jurisdiction over them anymore. Mm. You have lost any ability you have to try and assist them in transforming perhaps the way they look at the world or the way they're going to treat people. Um, What have you accomplished? You've accomplished punishment. 
Well, it particularly makes sense with younger people. They're the ones you want to reach early, and uh, we often hear about community service put quotes around that. But sure. what, by the way, before we move on, there's a difference between restorative justice and dispute resolution or conflict resolution. There is. Why don't you explain that difference? Sure. So my business is dispute resolution of all kinds. Mm-hmm. So mediation, arbitration. I will tell you that personally, I do not do any domestic cases. I don't I'm not in this the arena of divorces and custody and such. There are many people who are very gifted in that area. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to refer business to them because it just it involves more emotion than I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But in my world, many of the cases I'm dealing with involve um, you know a traumatic accident. So a, a typical thing that comes to mind is a car accident. You know, you and I don't know one another. We're in an accident on the expressway. I hit you with my car you're injured. You and I aren't going to have an ongoing relationship. I just happened to be behind you that day and hit you with my car. Right. So restorative justice between the two of us doesn't make that much sense because this was really a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my dispute resolution practice, we actually don't have much in the way of restorative justice only because we are talking almost 100% of the time about a monetary solution. And it's a monetary solution because there is an insurance company involved. Um, there is somebody who has lost their ability to work and has to be compensated for that. Um, there are compensable damages, and there is a source for um, meeting those you know, compensable needs. Why don't we do this? Why don't we give an example of what one restorative justice situation might sound like? Because that'll put it into perspective for many of our listeners. Sure. So a good example, and I think this is um, timely, is someone, I'm going to refer to people as complainant and respondent because it's easier. So the respondent makes an untoward remark in the workplace, Mm -hmm. says something that is offensive to the complainant. The complainant is understandably and justifiably upset about it and makes a report up the chain about what was said or what was done. In a restorative justice model, one would envision either bringing these two people together or if if they can't be brought together initially, speaking to the complainant and saying, again, have you been harmed? How have you been harmed? What do you need to feel that this wrong has been righted? And then who's going to have the obligation to do that act that's going to right this thing? Then one would go to the respondent and say, look, this is this is the claim that has been brought. This is what the claimant needs. And I'm going to give you a hypothetical. The claimant needs a sincere apology from you. The claimant needs a commitment from you that you're willing to engage in some sort of training or some sort of reflection and needs a commitment from you that you're not going to do it again, that your, your behavior is going to improve. If the respondent thinks to him or herself, gosh, that's um, humbling. I need to think about it. But this is a far better alternative than me being terminated from my job. That would be a very successful restorative that, justice. That's day. a great example in a company corporate setting. Is it starting to catch on? It is. And, you know, it involves training. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, you know, I have so much respect for people who work in HR because they're dealing with other people's problems all day long. And they kind of get the short end of the stick. They do have a tough job. They have a very tough job because, you know, the best of the best in HR, they are an island in and of themselves. They can't be friends with people Mm. because they can't be perceived as having a bias one way or the other. 
Um, they have a lot of information in their heads, and they have to compartmentalize that information. So, again, I'm going to use you as an example, Jordan. I'm happy to be used. Thank you very much. <laughs> if, you're, if you're somebody who comes in and makes a complaint to HR three times a week about one thing or another, and then you come in with a complaint that is very serious regarding something that was done to you by one of your colleagues, one hopes that a good HR director can set aside perhaps an instinctual feeling that, oh, it's Jordan again. He's here every day with a complaint and be able to give your immediate complaint fresh eyes. That's a tough job. But again, I think, you know, in a good company, a lot of money is invested in onboarding people. You, you know, you work hard to try and find the right fit for a job. You bring that person on, you onboard them, you train them. There's a lot of investment in our workers. And to be able to keep people on is, you know, it's a benefit to, obviously, to the employees because there's their livelihood, um, but also a benefit to the company. Seems to be a, a more rational approach than what we've seen so far in many, many instances where somebody, as you say, is leveled, doesn't have a chance to retort, and is gone and ruined for a long time. At the same time, maybe the satisfaction of the complainant isn't really, we're not meeting that satisfaction level either. Well, and to be fair, you know, and obviously I am generalizing here because well, there of course, are you know, yeah. so many different situations. I think sometimes what we see when people are separated from their company, we see someone who might have been approached by HR and and HR said, look, this is what you did. This is how it was perceived. Can you please talk to me about an apology, about working with your coworker to right this wrong? And the response may be, I didn't do anything wrong. I have nothing to apologize right. for. Mm -hmm. There are people who put themselves in a situation where they are not going to be able to participate in restorative justice, or they won't. So much sense in the workplace and in the school environment, because school administrators are dealing with issues every single day. How does it, though, move into the court system if it does? Are judges considering alternatives that involve restorative justice more and more these days? It depends. Um, I mean, our courts, our, our state criminal system has a duty to protect the citizenry. Of course. So there are there are situations, there are circumstances in which it is not appropriate to sort of put the process more into the hands of the victim and the players because there is, you know, in the court's view, a chance that this perpetrator is going to pose a threat to others. Of course. Um, but I think... <clears throat> Again, I have utmost respect for people who work in our court system because day in and day out, they see people who are in distress and, and not just the victims. Our court system is mm. filled with perpetrators who did something stupid mm. and who really regret that they did something stupid and they wish they could take it back. And restorative justice, when properly managed, and it has to be managed by the court system, obviously, right. um, gives an opportunity for someone to say... I am so sorry for what I did. I sincerely apologize. I have learned a very important lesson. I will never do this again. I will. I want to do what it is that you feel is going to help you heal or make you whole or whatever. Well, we have judicial discretion. We've always had it. 
This puts a name to it, though. I've never heard the, the term before researching our podcast today. I was unaware of it. You are a champion of this, apparently. You like the idea when it's applicable. Uh, is this the kind of thing that needed a name so we could qualify it and quantify it? <laughs> you know, uh, probably, because it's, it's an apt name. And to be extremely clear... I did not make this up. No, I know that. I'm, I'm just <laughs> okay, saying, you, yeah. you're, when I say championing yeah. it, you're, you're somebody who understands it and thinks it has merit in some places. I do. Mm-hmm. I'm a believer. Yeah. Because I think no matter where you look around us, we live in communities. Our, you know, we, our homes are in communities. We work in communities. Everywhere you go, you are shifting from one community to another. And if we cannot learn to live together and and to be forgiving of one another's mistakes, but also to accept responsibility for mm. mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think those two parts are equally difficult. Um, it is very hard for a victim who has been terribly injured um, emotionally, financially, physically to be forgiving. But it, I have seen people struggle with acknowledging what they did and having the humility to say, I I own it, and I want to try and repair it. There are life-changing episodes that occur when, when it does work. Again, it, we're talking about human beings here, so yeah. uh, everyone is, is sort of unique to their own situation. But what role do attorneys have? What role does the bar have, if any, in, in promoting this idea? I think the, the first task for attorneys is to learn the system mm-hmm. and to really and to think about it and sort of appreciate it and you know, we serve our clients. So I do think that there is benefit once attorneys understand the system to explain to their clients, look, here's an alternative. This is one way we can address this. And there will be clients who say, I'm not interested. I don't want any part of that. What I want is um, to file a lawsuit and to follow this thing through. And I want a jury trial and I want the opportunity to be heard in court. Um, Or I want the district attorney to go after this person as hard as they possibly can, and I want the most severe sentence a judge can possibly hand down. And those are perfectly fine options. The thing that is attractive to me and that I think about a lot with respect to restorative justice is in both of those scenarios, the victim has really handed over control of the process to somebody else. So um, in the spirit of full disclosure, Jordan, before I started mediation work, um, I was an insurance defense attorney, and I tried a lot of cases. So I tried cases on behalf of Stop and Shop, Home Depot, and Bradley's. And trial after trial, it was go in, I, I see the, the plaintiff, I had deposed the plaintiff, I knew the plaintiff pretty well at that point, and my job was to make sure I got a defense verdict. And in situations where I would try on behalf of my clients to settle the case ahead of time, I would say to the plaintiff through their attorney, look, my client's willing to make you an offer. If you accept that offer, then you have decided Mm. that this case is going to settle and you've decided that you will accept what we are offering. You You have control of this process for this moment in time. If you don't accept it, when we try this case, essentially I have control of this process. Because I will try this case, I'll try it really well, mm. and the likelihood is there's going to be a defense verdict. And it, um, I'm going to sound like a softie, but it kind of broke my heart a couple of times to take a de- defense verdict, which my client was thrilled with, and to look across the room and see the person who'd been injured, and they were devastated. 
because this case, from the moment of the opening statement, this case was not in their control. Mm. When they were on the stand testifying, their attorney asked them questions that they answered. I asked them questions, and the only answers they could give to my questions were yes or no. So I had total control of you, them. You obviously did, right. And then the case goes to the jury. Yeah. And so you know, 10 to 12, 12 to 14 total strangers are now going to s- decide this case for them. And in a criminal setting, it's essentially the same thing. Well, you said it at the beginning of our chat about uh, the three elements. They're different very much so than the, the punitive ones, the restorative ones. Let's just repeat what those are again, because this is the key element of this, this concept. It's you, the individual, have more control as to your fate and the fate of the wrongdoer, in a sense. Repeat those, right. if you will. Sure. So, and I'm going to do them, I'm going to line them up. So, in punitive justice, question number one is, what laws have been broken? The, the parallel in restorative justice, we ask who has been harmed. Mm-hmm. Going back to punitive justice, we say, okay, now who did it? Restorative justice, we ask, what are the needs of the person who was harmed? Punitive justice, last question is, what do they deserve as a punishment? In restorative justice, we ask, who has the obligation to repair the harm that was done to this person? This is a growing interest and concern for people, for businesses, schools, and in some cases in the courts. But you also, in your work as chairman of the MBA dispute resolution section and with Sarah E. Worley conflict resolution, deal with the traditional conflict resolution. Before we end, let's just talk a little bit about that. Uh, Because the economy is relatively good right now, is it true that there's less conflict resolution and more let's go to trial? Or is that just a... No, the what we see, and this trend seems to be consistent over decades, when the economy's good, there are fewer claims filed. Now, businesses are, I, I separate business from personal because businesses are generally contractual. If there's a breach of contract, they will file a claim against one another. They have to. In terms of personal things, um, mm-hmm. people are in a car accident. They're, I slip on your property. I am less likely to file a claim against you or about against the person who dinged me on the expressway in a good economy. In a bad economy, when people are starting to struggle, we see an uptick in claims. Uh, okay. And then we see an uptick in the use of dispute resolution because claims go up mm. somewhat pressured by some desperation. Mm-hmm. At the same time, those people don't want to take a risk of going in front of a jury because they don't want to risk getting zero. So they are more likely to engage in mediation or in arbitration where one can put parameters in place Mm. so that you are guaranteed some recovery out of the arbitration process um, because they need some surety that they're going to recover something. Interesting. Well, Sarah, with all that's going on in society today, in our courts and schools, at workplaces, it's nice to see people like you and others striving to resolve conflict in ways that are more reasonable and more civilized. Really appreciate your time today and the work you're doing for the MBA. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Mass Bar B podcast, available free at massbar.org and downloadable on most popular podcast platforms, including Apple, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. If you're a consumer in need of legal assistance, contact the Mass Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service. You can call them at 866-627-7577. Once again, that's 866-627-7577. Or visit masslawhelp.com. 
Let us connect you to a lawyer today. Mass Bar Beat is produced by the Massachusetts Bar Association, and we invite you to subscribe so you'll never miss a beat. This is Jordan Rich, thanking you for listening.